I think that a lot of our motor learning or, or skill acquisition strategies that come from that traditional approach are, they, they appear to be too um, consciously or logically controlled. They're relying on the prefrontal cortex to control movement. And this appears to be uh, really slow and ineffective. So a lot of times what's happening when an athlete is stuck in that, that paralysis by analysis loop is essentially they're trying to hold too much of the controlling information to succeed in this task in that prefrontal cortex. And when they do that, um, they, they freeze up. If you put them in context where they have to rely on reactive ability, the organization will, will, will kind of click in and the, the block, the psychological block will disappear. An example that I always use is probably the most dexterous or skillful mover that the NFL has ever seen in running back Barry Sanders of the Detroit Lions. He once said that when he was approaching a movement problem, he had to turn off his brain in certain ways and just act or react. That yeah. He didn't even know what was happening until it's been done and it's happened. That everything was driven for him from making a guy miss because he didn't want to be hit. Like it was as simple as that. Like no one likes to be hit. So start there, like figure out a way to not be hit, you know, like as opposed to going through this conscious processing in regard, which is probably going to be too slowly occurring because these are happening in time sensitive situations. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, so today on the podcast, we have Sean Mishka. Sean is the Pro Performance Director of Explosive Edge Athletics in Minneapolis. Um, He works extensively with NFL athletes. And what he's really known for is bringing the constraint-led approach and an ecological dynamics perspective to skill acquisition and how, you know, strengthening, what might traditionally be called strength conditioning coaches can work with um, athletes, so they actually get much better transfer um, to movement on the field. Now, this has a lot of interplay, obviously, with my approach and my beliefs around how we should approach movement training. So, I've been following Sean's work for a while, and I was really excited to be able to sit down and share a conversation with him where we kind of got a chance to go deep into these ideas around ecological dynamics. He's one of the guys I consider one of the foremost experts that I could talk to, and also someone who's really putting this into practice in a situation where he has very high skin in the game. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. Sean is a brilliant guy. Um, Without further ado, Sean Mishka. Sean, really excited to have you on the program today. So um, you're known as Movement Miyagi, right? As far as I know, you're kind of like the leading voice in getting an ecological dynamics type model and a 
motor learning type model to be more widely adopted in the team sports space and specifically with the NFL. Is that accurate? Um, you know, I, I humbly will take those words. Certainly, I will graciously take them. Um, and I appreciate them first and foremost, my friend, because um, it's something that really, you know, the framework in and of itself of ecological dynamics and, and ecological psychology and dynamical systems theory and, and really what that framework offers us. Um, in pedagogy, but also really to try and understand and investigate movement and then hopefully explain it and then attempt to acquire it. Um, it's something that obviously I've been uh, passionate about for a significant period of time now, and I'm trying to sort of just chip away and show people the light, if you will, in regards to what that framework can do for our investigative analysis, but also then our skill acquisition models and, and our learning environments and our activity design that obviously we um, are so engaged at, at trying to facilitate movement skill through. But of course, like yourself, uh, I feel as though I've been guilty of doing some of the things from the more traditionally minded ways and then figuring it out uh, along the way that maybe there was a better way. Yeah, cool. So let's let's get into that a little bit so the audience will know a little bit more about you and how you came to this. So you you work in um, you work in originally strength conditioning right and then now yeah. you call it sort of like um skill development or you know performance coaching for for nfl athletes that that is accurate uh, you know i was originally identifying as a physical preparation coach or as a strength and conditioning coach um but then soon after that i realized sort of this age-old cliche or adage that many strength coaches use many physical preparation specialists use this cliche said by the great uh, Mel Siff and Dr. Yerver Koshansky, where they said sport is nothing but a problem-solving activity where movements are used to produce unnecessary solutions. And of course, people utter that. You go to any strength and conditioning conference or you, you read some journals or you see it on Twitter and people are saying that, but oftentimes then you look at what they're doing within their pedagogical models, within their practice design, and you see that they're violating that. There's no problems to, to be had there they're giving their athletes solutions without the athlete actually finding themselves in that solution. And once that really started to resonate to me and I was able to kind of look myself in the mirror and say, are my athletes performing because of me on field or are they performing in spite of me and what we're doing on field? And of course, I didn't like the, the answer to that question because it sort of fit within that latter point that I just brought up that I felt like because my NFL players are just really compensatory creatures, you know, they just have the ability to compensate and adapt better than the rest of the human beings walking the face of the planet, mm -hmm. that a lot of times they were performing in spite of me. Uh, when I was using a more, or let's just refer to it as a traditionally minded way of going about developing not only physical preparation, but also movement skill. And once I started to go down that other path of movement skill, that's what led me to the ecological dynamics framework. I started to un unpack many of those ideas of Nikolai Bernstein, JJ Gibson, Carl Newell, um, numerous other obviously thought leaders and pioneers within the field to give me a better understanding and lens from this framework. And, and then that framework obviously led me 
not 180 degrees, but pretty close to it. And that's why I come to be known now as more of a sport movement specialist or sport movement facilitator, a learning environment designer for my players, rather than somebody who's a dictator, maybe even a coach, if you will, um, or someone who um, is trying to tell an athlete how to solve a problem and not really presenting problems to that athlete per se. Yeah, yeah. I used to think of coaching as essentially a process of taking information that I had and giving it to a student, right? And I actually had one of my one of my apprentices, uh, one of the coaches who I trained, who you know she was having this really like people said her classes were like magic. There was something different going on in her classes. So I went out for coffee and I was like, "What is it that you're doing that's unique?" And she said, "You know, you you think of coaching as like." how to set up the correct set of progressions, right? It's kind of like an engineering problem. Um, And I think of coaching as how to create an experience for the athlete. I love that. And for some reason that created this, this big shift in my mind between thinking of the coach as like the hero of the story, right? To recognizing that the coach is the guide and each individual athlete is the hero. So you're, you're there to, to help them set the frame within which they can engaging behavior that's going to allow them to progress. Yeah, I I really love that because I do view myself more as a facilitator now uh, where I set problems and then try to determine how we can channel that movement system into finding the solution. Of course, that's why certain ideas of ecological dynamics really resonated so well to me because I started to see that really being applied in many different ways, um, not only within certain things that, that come from your experience and within your craft, but even in my own, you know, you start to watch people move and how they move and, and you start to respect some of the nonlinearity that you were just indicating, you know, where that peer told you specifically, you were looking at it from an engineering perspective, but obviously if it's engineering, it's more mechanic, mechanistic, it's, it's more um, progressive, right? There's progressions or regressions. Whereas I think once you start looking at it from an experience and allowing that athlete to be exposed to problems and they get a chance then to interact with those problems and their movement system gets a chance to sort of resonate and tune into things that the problem is offering them or the learning environment is offering them. All of a sudden you do see that magic happen. Like, like she told you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for some reason what pops in my head is, uh, uh, some of my, you know, good friends of mine in this kind of movement space, fighting monkey, they talk about, you know, they're not teachers. Right, teaching without a teacher. What they do is they propose a challenge. Right? Yeah, like they they have a set of propositions in which you can see what kind of growth or what kind of self knowledge you can generate. Yeah, I think that's a. You know, and, and that to me, when I hear you say that, and I am familiar to a certain degree with some of the fighting monkey stuff. But what what I realize there is sort of the connection to some of the old Bruce Lee ideas, of course, and and him thinking himself as being more of that guide instead of the giver of truth. You're just a guide to it. And you allow the student to really find their own truth and to sort of then again absorb what is useful and discard what is not and add what is uniquely your own and make it your own experience that gets to live and breathe and grow. And alongside of that, your movement skill grows as well. Yeah, the finger pointing to the moon. Yes. Yes. You got it. You've watched it yourself. Um, So, you know, just, you know, my audience has probably heard me talk about ecological dynamics a few times, but I think that it it can be easy to, to be attacking 
the traditional thing or what that, you know, without really clarifying what it is. So for you, what are you seeing is kind of the predominant narrative or predominant um, uh, approach, the predominant frame that people are using within preparing athletes that you think might be missing something? And, and what is it? How do you define ecological dynamics? What does that mean to you? How does it show up in the, in, in the work that you're doing? Yeah. And first things first, I'll kind of um, bash, if you will, the more traditionally minded way, because I was sitting right there, right? Yeah. Um, sort of adopting this technical model of movement, this one size fits all mechanistic way of being able to move is sort of this traditionally minded way of thinking of things that that movement lives within the brain and it's just this homunculus who's a puppeteer who's controlling these degrees of freedom after we've had enough rote repetitions of executing something a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. And if we don't do it right, we just inherently, we just need more repetitions. You know, this is sort of these truths that we've been fed over time traditionally. And that implication of that is as the coach, then you do have the answers. As the teacher, you do have the answers, right? Because you just have to set um, and figure out and detect and correct errors for the student and then have them perform it more perfectly, right? So that's where this whole idea of perfect practice makes perfect and perfect practice makes permanent kind of comes from, right? And so then you get to this place where this teacher is just offering almost this barrage, this inundation of, of constant instruction and constant feedback to the learner. And the learner really isn't experiencing it for him, him or herself. Their movement system isn't really resonating or connecting to that, which what is doing in the outside world within the problems that are existing there. And then oftentimes, at least from my experience with athletes, is they're able to perform it when it is a cute, nice, neat, sexy drill but they're not actually able to perform or execute within context, at least to the same degree. And so what ecological dynamics really offered for me is, is this different way of looking or investigating as at the human movement system and how it controls and how it behaves within movement, but also then how we should go about acquiring or learning movement skill as well. First and foremost, like ecological dynamics for those out there, it's basically two um, a marriage of two constructs. The first side, the ecological psychology side, which basically says that the ongoing um, control of movement, the regulation of movement is dependent on or stemming from, channeled from the role of information within the contextual world. And so what we find there is our scope of analysis is the performer environment relationship. And the two should not be separated from one another. There's a mutual reciprocal relationship that exists there. So that's this ecological psychology side that was proposed initially by J.J. Gibson and then a few others. Uh, we have some ideas such as direct perception and direct learning that sort of come from this. But really what we find within it is it's the role of information. There's a distributed energy array around us that we have an opportunity to couple ourselves with or our movement with through our perception, our detection, our pickup of that information uh, through our perceptual and sensory system. So on that side, we have the ecological psychology and then that marries itself to the dynamical systems or sometimes referred to as complex systems theory. Mm -hmm. And within dynamical systems theory, it basically views the human movement system as a complex adaptive system with self-organization properties. Mm -hmm. 
and within dynamical systems then because of that self-organization and because we do take a systems oriented lens we start to look at um, concepts such as the interconnectedness of those component parts that are interacting to form a whole or a global pattern. That's the self-organized movement solution, if you will, if we wanna look at the human movement system as a dynamical system. And of course, the human movement system is a dynamical system, the environment presents a dynamical system, and these systems then become coupled together. Within the dynamical system perspective or side, it should be noted that it doesn't denote a single causal responsibility for movements, such as it's not just the brain that's causing that movement. It's the brain interacting with the behaviors that are interacting with the biomechanics. It's this collation, if you will, this circular causality um, of the system and of that solution. So the perceptions, the intentions and cognitions and our thought processes will all interact with the actions and there's all going to have, each one of those subsystems and their processes are going to have independent and interdependent degrees of freedom that are going to hopefully emerge into a more functional movement solution when we are presented with a problem in the environment. And so for me, I know that's a, a lot to chew on there for those <laughs> who probably haven't heard that. I was trying to hopefully, uh, um, you know, synthesize that into something that kind of takes home the heavy hitting points of ecological dynamics. But really, for me, it comes down to movement problem solving. Yeah. And, you know, that's probably the thing that's lacking and missing in most people's environment. And it's really what we all are after, whether you're training or and I say training really loosely there, whether you're facilitating skill within parkour athletes or whether you're facilitating skill for an NFL player who has to go execute on an NFL Sunday. Yeah. A lot of a lot of stuff for me to pick up on there. But one thing, you know, I think I, I really like to, you know, said is essentially is about movement problem solving. Yeah, and I think this is where 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 a lot of it gets lost because people are end up focused on the on the role of um, of like f just physiological functions, right? What is your VO two max, right? You know how much hypertrophy do you have? What is your you know you know how how hard can you squeeze a muscle? Or they end up focused at the level of a pattern, right? So I. You know, this this kind of like the clarity around this came for me a little bit when listening to um, an interview you know, Portal did with London Real, I believe. And he said, you know, what kind of muscles you have? No, bro. What kind of patterns you have? And I was like, no, it can't. It's not patterns. It's what kind of solutions. Right. Got it. What kind of solutions can you create? Because, you know, essentially, when you go when you go to patterns, that's like kata in martial arts. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. What we what we know from MMA is that. Kata, you know, it might it might have some sort of pedagogical purpose in like codifying an understanding of different things, but it won't make you a fighter. In order to become a fighter, you have to practice punches when someone's trying to avoid being punched and to punch you back. You got it. it has to be in the environment. You know, I know that within the team sport world, like for instance, change of direction is a, is a really good example of how uh, of how these two ways of looking at it end up with different solutions. If you look at it from a purely mechanical standpoint, you see an athlete and they, you, know, you test them and they, they don't change direction in the theoretically perfect way. And you, you think you can fix it by having them do a 
isolated change of direction drill. But the research seems to show that doesn't actually transfer. In order to get the transfer, they have to be changing direction in something that, that is coupled tightly enough to similar information that it shows up on the field. Well, and I really love that because if we really look at movement problem solving, then as this coupled movement solution, this functional behavioral unit, when we think of that function, it's all comes back to the context, right? So it makes very little sense to try to develop skill outside of the context or without context being presented to the athlete or the problem to be presented to the athlete. And, and that's where I really like that you brought up the idea of being coupled because it's those perceptions, it's those cognitions and it's those actions that become intertwined and coupled more closely than to the problem that it's being presented with. And then we find, you know, like at least in the ecological dynamics perspective, it's not about the acquisition of some mental representation of how to execute those respective patterns or even in the solution. What Bernstein showed us way back in 67, it was in the process of solving that problem again and again, where we were tweaking and tuning it at a multidimensional level of that solution. It wasn't just biomechanical degrees of freedom, but it was perceptual degrees of freedom and it was cognitive degrees of freedom and it was action and motor system degrees of freedom, but they were all intertwined. And then we were looking to develop them together in the same way. We should not study them separate from one another and we should probably not try to acquire their skill in, you know, separate from one another either, which is sort of the example that you brought up there with change of direction versus say more context specific agility. Yeah, so one of the models that we've kind of come up with over the years is this idea that um, you generally always want to train at the highest level of complexity that allows you to target whatever you're trying to change, right? So you, you get, you know, for um, for a, for an NFL player, the most information, the most the most um, the most adaptive kind of signals across the broadest set of relevant parameters are gonna happen in the game, mm -hmm. right? So the game is gonna be the biggest teacher, mm -hmm. but there's going to be kind of potentially weak links within that athlete that aren't sufficiently targeted or tightly targeted enough within that context. So like a traditional way to solve that is to go all the way down to the most isolated thing that you can do but then we have a problem of transfer. And so um, I, I'm writing an article right now on what we call a roughhousing approach. The idea here is that we are, we basically have looked at the research on rough and tumble play. And then we've combined that with our experience training, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, wrestling, um, capoeira, contact dance to create this, this sort of play-based approach to movement. And, and the thing that I notice is that within the martial arts, there's a, all the martial arts that work, the ones that show up in MMA and are successful, they all have a care, they all will have a, a free play system that they use, right? So they all, you know, in boxing, you have a way of, of sparring and Muay Thai, you have a way of sparring and wrestling, you have a way of sparring. And in all of those situations, you're not doing rope behavior, right? Behavior is emergent from two goal directed organisms trying to achieve something in, in competition with each other. Now, traditionally, though, in most martial arts, you, you learn skills and then you play, right? And 
there's often not a lot of sort of finely differentiated versions of the game that allow you to target these things. So like a, um, an example that's been occurring for me that I, I really liked was uh, right now in jujitsu, the, the kind of the, the no-gi game has become really all about leg locks. So now all these athletes who didn't have a leg lock game want to learn leg locks. So they need to learn how, obviously, to do the technique of a heel hook. Um, but I'm like, how do you develop all of the things that go into controlling someone's leg in a leg entanglement in an alive way? Because even if you know this technique, if you don't know all the ways to get there, you're not going to be very effective. So, um, so we came up, like I, I was taught this really simple game, which is you have the athletes put socks on, you have them get down on the ground with their, you know, with their legs in front of each other, and then they have to try and take each other's socks off. <laughs> Right. So now you're going to get all the same leg entanglement positions that you would experience in jujitsu if you're trying to attack someone's legs, but you've removed the variable of actually like attacking the ankle and potentially hurting each other while you're in the learning stage. Now, obviously, you're still going to have to understand the mechanics of a heel hook or, uh, you know, or an ankle lock or whatever toe, you know, um, toe hold, whatever it is you're trying to do. But you have to have a you have to have also scaling in the games. And as I was writing this article and thinking about that, it, it occurred to me that that's a lot of what is happening in the constraint-led approach in the team sport world. Is it's learning to scale the games mm -hmm. so that you can retain as much of the breadth of the adaption as possible while being able to target the adaption you need and keep the athletes safe while you're doing it. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a really accurate way of putting it as well, because really what you're talking about is just changing it. When you talk about scaling uh, the activity or scaling the problem, you're really just talking about scaling the information that's present, right? Yeah. How much information, especially if we're talking about complexity, um, complexity usually is going to be associated with how much information is going to be available across the landscape, how many affordances for action are going to be present there for that performer to interact with after having perceived. And I think that's the whole thing with the representativeness or level of it, of that information and trying to get the athlete to learn how to interact with that information through their movement. I mean, so that's where I think that example that you utilize is relatively fascinating there, because really that's what I'm doing again within a constraints-led approach for my American football players. I'm trying to drive skill through the facilitation of that. Obviously, I don't have 11 on 11 where it's going to look, feel, and act exactly and identical to the way that it will when it's an NFL Sunday and I don't have 70,000 people watching it and, and I don't have um, you know money on the line and so on and so forth. But there's ways to recreate slices of the game, if you will, slices of the problem that we are we know that the athlete is going to have to interact with so they can try to connect to it more multidimensionally than just role repetition of, of technique, uh, maybe the way that it's traditionally implied or done. Yeah. So one thing that pops in my head talking about that is like, um, you know, I, I have a big background with martial arts, very interested in, in violence and self-defense. And one thing that's interesting about the game of football is that it's kind of like um, it's kind of like self-defense or violence in which it's not actually very sustainable to play the full version of the game super regularly. So 
you know, if you could adapt to it and you could stay safe doing it, then maybe ideally the the best way to train for football is to play 11 on 11 every day, you know, for as long as you can. Um, But most people are going to get broken pretty fast doing that. That's my guess, right? Well, not only are they going to get broken, but the other side of it is something that you mentioned a little earlier as well. If you always exist at the highest level of complexity, it's hard to fill in the gaps because you're always at your perceptual, cognitive or biomechanical overload, like you're already at your your peak. So to exist in an optimal challenge point there where you're able to stretch your grip, if you will, on the movement problem and the solutions that you have to it, I think is the most optimal place to be. And usually if we're 11 on 11, it's hard to exist there at all times because it is such disordered chaos at times, even for those who are at the highest level of skill or performance. And, And then the other thing that kind of pops into my mind is if we only play 11 on 11, sometimes the scenarios or the situations that represent the highest complexity uh, or more maybe the most novel or difficult problem to solve isn't going to present itself frequently enough for us to learn how to interact or acquire the skill and fill in those respective gaps. Maybe learn how those affordances present themselves what it means to us and our action capabilities and what we bring to that problem and how we have to adjust those movement couplings to the information that exists there. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. So what, what popped into my mind there was, so you have the game, you want to play the game, but then you need to be able to isolate out pieces of the game because um, as you mentioned, you might not see something regularly enough. It's like one thing that, um, you know, in jujitsu, right? Role, doing jujitsu, we have in most traditional schools, it's like you learn a skill and then you go roll. But a lot of times your your retention of the skill that you just learned is poor because the likelihood that you will be in the situation that allows application of that skill soon enough after your initial um, exposure to it isn't high enough. And so the, the skill acquisition would be improved by taking pieces of the jiu-jitsu game out and and playing them where you know you're going to get exposed to 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 that like like the leg lock game right it's like if you if you're going to spar with people who aren't going to allow you to to or you're not going to get a good uh, situation to get the leg locks you might learn this nice transition into a heel hook but you're just not going to be able to see it often enough when you go spar unless you change the way that you spar such that that becomes a really salient sort of um, affordance within the landscape of that particular game. Well, and I think you're definitely onto something there because you're really just talking about manipulating constraints, right? Manipulating constraints to uh, organize the perception, cognitions, and actions in little different ways uh, based on the problem that's being presented from both sides of the party, you know, both opponents facing one another. It's as much about the information then is, is about the movement and the opponent that you're facing. It's about in this information and energy exchange and allowing that athlete to really have the place or ability to interact with it more efficaciously. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You, you mentioned information. I, I'm kind of going to go in a, in a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm just curious for your, your take on this. I was, I was watching one of my athletes um, who's doing our online course right now and they were, they were working on a precision jump. And they were failing like 80% of the time on the precision jump. And what popped in my head was that that's probably not the optimal rate of failure 
to acquire the skill effectively. Because if we think about, you know, essentially when you're trying a new motor task um, or a, a challenging motor task, if you are, uh, if you fail every time, there's probably many, many reasons why you're failing. And it's going to be hard to recognize the most salient, the most important information from those, uh, from that, you know, huge sea of noise. And on the flip side, if you set the difficulty so low that you essentially never fail, there's al- there's very little information for the athlete to glean from it. So there's like the zone of optimal challenge that's going to allow effective, you know, skill acquisition from an information perspective. So that was like, oh, that, I thought that was really interesting. And then that connects to, um, you know, play research, which shows that when people are successful sufficiently often, they're highly motivated. When they're successful all the time, they lose motivation. Yeah. When they're never successful, they lose motivation. And it also connects to like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's ideas with the flow state, where the flow state is that zone of optimal challenge where, you know, you have high level of challenge, high levels of competence. Um, and, and that's where the reward or the psychological side comes in. But interestingly, they all like came together in my head as, as deeply connected. So I think it's interesting that you're, you're, you're continually talking about that idea of information. What we're trying to control as teachers in these contexts is to essentially make the, um, the, the, the right type of information relevant and constrain it so that that information is, um, is sufficiently challenging but not so challenging that the athlete can't pick up on it. Yeah, I think you're definitely onto something there because it's that information that the athlete is going to then perceive and have a chance or opportunity to interact with. Obviously, there's an abundance of information that's available within our world and we can't possibly attend to all of it. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is attend to the most specifying information. You know, that's the idea within ecological dynamics of perceptual attunement or the ability to be most sensitive to the most specifying information for that respective problem or what we're being presented with. And so I think the idea of attunement in the development of it, that's how we really get the most functional fit of our movement solution to the problem that we face. But we have to have an opportunity uh, to interact with it there. And if we're not stretched sufficiently enough, sort of what you're talking about here in regards to being in that flow state and being in a place of optimal challenge, but also an optimal amount of competence, at least with the higher level performer, at least what I work with, they want to be challenged more often than not. So they're not accustomed to making mistakes within training or practice when they first get to me or where they first start with me. But yet the game that they face, not only on an NFL Sunday, but within the practice setting, they're frequently failing. And so their system, there's this huge disconnect and there is no conduit. I find that, or they find when they start doing some of my work, that we can be that conduit in between. We can sort of surf this complexity bandwidth or the information bandwidth and have some movement problems that are more easy to solve. And then some problems that they're going to really have to be able to stretch themselves, not only perceptually, but also again, cognitively or intentionally where their thoughts and their ideas and their motivations may flow. And then of course, what action capabilities they may have to meet the needs as well. And that's where some of the techniques and the patterns and, and uh, you know, things that typically we've done pretty decent with 
within the profession or community sort of coming into the mix as well. So it's, again, it's degrees of freedom being organized across those different dimensional levels of the system. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not that patterns don't matter or that our physical attributes or psychological attributes don't matter in isolation. It's just that um, you have to you have to be organizing them effectively. Um, yes. And you, you have to keep them in context. You know, we are uh, one of the things that I was listening to one of your talks and you're saying the performance is the screen, right? Yeah. You want to know the most important information about an athlete. There's no, there's no, you know, perfect kind of set of tests that you can do in the gym. The best information is going to be in watching them perform their sport. You got it. Yeah, you know, and there's something to that, too, because typically we want to use things like screening methods. And I'm not saying that they don't um, or they never apply, but certainly the higher level performers that we go, uh, the more it's going to, you know, the only thing that really matters is the game film and what happens within the problems that exist there. Uh, you know, I was having a conversation in regards to uh, one of the best running backs of all time in Adrian Peterson, uh, a guy that I've done some work with. And if we were to take it back and, and apply a functional movement screen, for example, to a guy like Adrian, he'd probably fail, literally fail every single one of those seven tests. But you throw him out on a football field and he's solving the problems then and there where it counts. And I think that's where we have to try and determine when do we use it? Why do we use it and what are we really gleaning from that screen? Because eventually there then the performance and the execution of the task in context is going to determine the content of that movement solution and what it should look like, what that should feel like, what that should behave like and how that actually emerges too. Yeah. Um, that sounds just like, a, you know, we had an amazing running back here in Seattle, Marshawn Lynch, mm -hmm. um, my friend, Michael Tankovich, who uh, I think I mentioned before the call. Uh, you know, he was working with him and he's like, yeah, he, you know, he, he fails all of the tests, right. For the FMS, right. Yeah. But he outperforms everybody on the field, right. He, he, you know, what he does, he does incredibly well. And he has a specific set of action capabilities that allows him to do that. You can't detune him from what he does too much by demanding that he fit some archetype of what functional movement looks like. Well, and I think, you know, that's exactly right. That's 100% right, because that's why investigating movement behavior in context is so imperative, not only to an ecological dynamics approach, but even if someone wants to discredit some ideas of ecological dynamics, I don't think they can discredit that what we're talking about now in regards to the investigation of movement behavior in context, because it's intuitively obvious that that's really truly what matters. Yeah. Someone can learn, you know, so for for the BJJ practitioner, for the, the parkour practitioner, for the NFL player, for the, you know, middle middle school basketball player, all of these things. Right. Those things are all oriented around being able to behave when and where it counts, which is when the lights are on or when a pr problem is presented to us um, where we it's a situation where we must solve it. You know, I think if we go back to Nikolai Bernstein's words in regards to dexterity or the ability to solve any emerging movement problem under any situation and under any condition, right? Like, so if I'm an American football player or my players, um, you know, if we use dexterity as this hallmark characteristic of that, which what we're after, we have to test that movement skill in any emergent situation and condition. 
any condition they could potentially be presented with or across a wide bandwidth of situations and conditions. And I know the same thing certainly applies in parkour or those other examples that I utilize as well in martial arts, obviously, and, and really anything that we talk about, the ability to solve that problem when it emerges, when it's unpredictable and when it has chaos and, and it's going to be more live, if you will, our movement skill has to be alive too. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, are you familiar with Matt Thornton? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, uh, I was, my, my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school, um, was in a straight blast gym affiliate when I, uh, was training in my early twenties and, you know, there I was exposed to the idea of aliveness in martial arts. If you're yeah. familiar with that, aliveness is, you know, what we already mentioned, which is essentially having your skills attuned to a context. That's, that's a good way to describe it, right? Yes, 100%. Um, I agree completely. And, uh, and what was interesting for me is that I, uh, you know, I came into parkour and in parkour, at least at one level, there was this idea of parkour was fundamentally about being able to reach or escape in an emergency situation. But I noticed nobody's ever chasing or being chased. <laughs> so we we started developing this this philosophy of aliveness in parkour right and that's carried on into our work with with evolving play so we'll do things like um there's really interesting effects from this too right so we'll we take elements from team sports so if we're um we're working on a, a line um like doing a series of vaults and jumps and swings and whatever um what we'll do is uh is we'll have one athlete stand in front of the other and try to interrupt them as they initiate their line, mm -hmm. right? And then we'll have rules around how you can do that. You know, we'll have chases, we'll have we'll have games to create that that capacity for aliveness. And what's really interesting about that is um, that a lot of times, if an athlete is struggling with organizing a skill because they're getting into paralysis by analysis, if you Put them in context where they have to rely on reactive ability the organization will 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 kind of click in and the the block the psychological block will disappear well i think because you're destabilizing the system stability so much there that then they resort to some self-organization properties to a certain degree, right? The movement system finds a solution that, that it knows that it has because the chaos has disturbed or altered the system stability so much. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean stability for those listeners out there. I don't mean it literally yeah. uh, the stability from a physical standpoint, but stability in regards to how predictable or how consistent or how functional of a solution that athlete can organize or that individual can organize if we disturb or alter that stability they have to flexibly and adaptively try to control around it and they might find themselves sort of like jolted like you said to where where the the degrees of freedom were fixed and frozen initially but we did something in the world outside of it that forced them to get to a place where they had to flexibly control that movement solution in a different way yeah um yeah, I mean that's that's interesting. That's totally like aligned with what, what we're trying to achieve, right? And in, in building this aliveness capacity, um, one way I've thought about this, though, and I'm, I'm curious to to get your take on this, is I think that a lot of our motor learning, our, our skill acquisition strategies that come from that traditional approach are they they appear to be too um, consciously or logically controlled. They're relying on the prefrontal cortex to control movement. And this appears to be uh, really slow and ineffective. So a lot of times what's happening when an athlete is stuck in that 
that paralysis by analysis loop is essentially they're trying to hold too much of the controlling information to succeed in this task in that prefrontal cortex. And when they do that, um, they, they freeze up. Um, and what, you know, what, one of our big things is in creating aliveness and creating all these things is how do I move the athletes from a volitional control of a motor pattern to a reactive control of the matter pattern? So a classic one that we look at is breakfalls, right? Traditionally, breakfalls are taught as a series of, of, um, of static skills, right? Of like specific skill executions, and you do them in isolation. And what we found is that this has very poor transfer to actual falling ability. And that when you fall in, in a real context, um, very often, whatever um, kind of cardinal archetypal patterns that you, that you have, it's not going to look exactly like that anyways. So what we've we've adopted is a, a bunch of ways of essentially um, creating free play that forces falls to happen. That's then scaled in how fast and how aggressive and how high the athletes are moving. So then they can they can learn to adopt that and that that element of of having the the learning be initiated in that reactive control in that sort of subconscious motor control system. Um, we found to be incredible in the way that it actually creates safety for the athletes over time. Yeah. And I think you're definitely onto something there because I find it with my athletes specifically who've been inundated with uh, augmented information from a coach, you know, so an NFL player obviously has been playing football for a significant period of time. And oftentimes that model that they have within their mind is too consciously driven. Like what you're mentioning, they have too much knowledge about the activity as opposed to just having knowledge within or in or of the environment and the problems that they're being presented with. And I think that's sort of what we're talking about here too, because if we really think about it, the environment in the task and when they collace together with one another and they they form this contextual problem for us to solve or interact with if we have knowledge of it or knowledge within it is part of like we're sort of making the problem and the solution become one with one another then the information about the problem gives us everything we need. It's already meaningful enough if we have our own intention to just solve that problem. Like if it if it forces me out of my comfort zone to find a solution because I have to adapt. If a tiger walks into this tanning room right now, I'm, you're going to see me self-organize really quickly and I'm not going to have the time because it's going to be a time sensitive situation and a space sensitive situation. I'm going to have to resort to that movement solution that at least my system feels comfortable or confident enough with without consciously controlling it. Cause there's enough meaning from that tiger and from <laughs> my surroundings to, to get me to, to get out of here. Yeah. It's kind of like the same thing that we find then of when it is too consciously driven. Uh, you know, players, I find that players, when they first get to me, they have a really hard time with that because again, they might have 10 years, maybe more of a coach always giving them augmented information or feedback in regards to how their intentions have to be oriented around and aim to act in a given way. Whereas I try to tell them or show them that the problem is always is already giving them the 
the ways to, to interact or their aims should be driven from the opportunities that are present in that, that problem in most of these cases. An example that I always use is probably the most dexterous or skillful mover that the NFL has ever seen in running back Barry Sanders of the Detroit Lions. He once said on his, his uh, top 100 players list that when he was approaching a movement problem, he had to turn off his brain in certain ways and just act or react that yeah. he didn't even know what was happening until it's been done and it's happened. And sometimes then you'd have to watch a jumbotron that everything was driven for him from making a guy miss because he didn't want to be hit. Like it was as simple as that. You know, I, I've watched a little bit um, of some of the ghost boxing stuff that exists out there and their whole mon, you know, motive, their whole intention is like, no one likes to be hit. No one wants to be hit. So start there, like yeah. figure out a way to not be hit, you know, like as opposed to going through this conscious processing in regard, which is probably going to be too slowly occurring because these are happening in time sensitive situations. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like, uh, with our method, what we do is we start with exploring a task space. We try to set up some constraints in the task space that make it sufficiently safe or have the right type of information that the athletes can work with. Yeah. Us. So like within parkour, that means we find a series of logs or a series of, you know, walls or whatever that are an appropriate height for the athletes to go under, over, and around. And we just ask them, go from here to there. Yeah. And then you can give them little, little cues within that to ask them how, you know, like here's some more constraints to move in specific ways. And then they'll self-organize a lot of the patterns. And then you can start saying, recognize this pattern. And here's a little bit of if you understand the principle of what you're trying to achieve, you want to have good rhythm, you want to control your, your direction of momentum, your displacement of the obstacles. Now, now you can start seeing how these, these tools, these movements actually help you achieve that. Um, so you're setting up an environment and a task problem that has safe uncertainty to a certain degree. Yeah. That allows them to explore it sufficiently. So the practice task is just a search for a solution that then you as a facilitator will nudge or attempt to facilitate more, uh, a more finely attuned or fit and adaptable movement solution to it. Yeah, precisely. And the same thing with, with, uh, with, with our like roughhousing approach. Like a lot of the games that we play initially are games that give very obvious cues for evasion, right? Don't get hit. So, you know, like, uh, yeah, the Barry Sanders rule, dude, don't get tackled. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we, we mentioned fighting monkey earlier. Their, their, uh, their practice ball is a great tool for teaching someone to not get hit. Right. It, it, it begins to generate uh, evasion behavior. The, the downside to it is that it's not tightly coupled to the types of things that are going to hit you. So, but it's a very safe, it, it feels safe and it generates a wide range of behavior, which we they can then transition towards a more perceptually relevant task, like avoiding, you know, and then we start with really big open gestures that are related to strikes, but that contain way more information because a well-designed martial arts strike contains the minimal information possible. So we well, I think something there, uh, I think something there that you're saying is something that I always go back to, especially an ecological dynamics idea in regards to um, degeneracy or movement abundance will mm -hmm. precede movement skill or dexterity, right? Yeah. Like we have to have a lot of different solutions before we can figure out how to most functionally couple the right one to the problem, mm -hmm. right? The, the bigger breadth that we have here, the more depth we're going to be able to go. 
Yeah, we want, I mean, that's actually been kind of the fundamental idea, one of the fundamental ideas of how behind development play from the very beginning is this idea that that a, a well-designed movement practice is a pro, uh, is essentially a zoom in, zoom out process, yeah. right? You try to increase the width of the things that you can com- you can comprehend. You give yourself different frames, different types of information, and then you use that to dive deeper into specific things that allow you to go further down the path to mastery. And so you're always going... Right. Yeah. And I love that because I think too often we go, we go the other way right from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Like with most movers or with most athletes, with most human organisms, we go and try to constrain them too much. We try to determine that we know what's best for the system uh, and all the host of problems or options that it's going to have within those problems later on. And we just don't have that kind of authority, of course. Yeah. Uh, so the more so, you know, the bigger palette that we give them early on, I think the more skill potential that we offer them later on. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, like a gardener versus a um, versus an engineer. Right. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, a beautiful analogy to think about the proper role of the coach. Right. The, the gardener puts the tree in the ground and lets it starts to grow, and then it trims the limbs as they come to create the shape that's necessary. Right. The engineer designs exactly the thing, but then things cannot emerge as well. And yeah. so, um, within what, like, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I, I see, there's this idea that. I think there's an idea in general because, again, I think uh, we go back to this idea of how, what are the frames that we generally have for thinking? And I think one of them is reductionist science, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, it's the machine idea. It's the analogy of the machine. So everything has been about how we find the small pieces and we reduce it down to its constituent pieces. So everyone in, in, in movement is like trying to talk about what are the basic fundamentals, the atoms of skill, mm-hmm. right? Whereas I'm trying to say, what is the whole food of movement nutrition for your body? And then if that is not getting you where you need to go, how do you then recognize what's missing and be, uh, begin to isolate out the pieces? But you don't know what to isolate out if you don't have, if you don't have the whole pie to look at. Does yeah. that make sense? It absolutely does, because really what you're talking about, there is a more linear thought process first in regards to the isolated component parts, where really all we care about is the more systems oriented way and how they relate to one another to form this global whole that then would be fit or matched to meet the the needs of the ecosystem it's a part of and the other systems it's connected to. So absolutely it does, because the interconnections are really what matters and the relations are really what matters. Those relations to a whole, not the component parts, because once you isolate them, as you well know, um, it probably doesn't behave the way that it will when it is back part of the whole. Yeah, I mean, you can take a human body apart, you can't put it back together. <laughs> right. So the the whole is more than the sum of its parts, and this idea that that the you know uh, the I method isolate, integrate, improvise. Right. The idea that the the foundational piece of a movement practice is being able to isolate out all the atoms of that practice. I think it's uh it's it's fundamentally a, a deep mistake. Right. And if you approach. Yeah, I think it is, too. And I think it's what we've done for too long a period of time and tried to perfect those things. And then when it gets put back into the hole, then we wonder where it was or where it went, you know, because it but it wasn't developed there. It wasn't acquired there. It actually doesn't function in that way. No. And then we find that we're really disillusioned when they get back into the transference test 
not only the retention test, but the transfer test, which is what we really tried to impact to begin with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I wanted to go back. There's something that just keeps ringing in my head because there's a couple of interesting things here. But we're talking about information. We're talking about, you know, where the what part of the, the mind what part of the brain is trying to control things, right? Or the body-brain integration. And um, talking about that volitional versus active and that, that getting stuck in the brain. And you were talking about knowledge of something versus knowledge in something. Mm-hmm. And it it uh, reminded me of this idea that I get from John Ravakey, who I mentioned earlier. He's one of my mentors. He's a cognitive psychologist and scientist and very deeply, you know, um, conversant in the ecological dynamics ideas from a cognitive science perspective. He's divided knowing into four levels of knowing. Propositional, which is essentially your ability to kind of create inferences and juggle symbols in your mind, right? Um, So I could propositionally describe to you how to do a parkour skill, right? And you could have a very clear, perfect sort of model of what that skill looks like in your head. But that wouldn't give you the next layer, which would be procedural. Right. Procedural is you can actually execute that skill. And then there's perspectival, which is like seeing where that skill can be applied. Right. And then participatory, which is how doing those things actually transforms you, how you interrelate with the thing that you're doing and how it transforms you over time. So the analogy that I, I, I just talked to him about was like, you can imagine that I could tell, you know, I could tell you that uh, a mother is supposed to feed her baby when they cry. That's a proposition, right? And then, you know, knowing how to actually get the feeding to work, that's a procedural. Um, and there's this whole, this whole salience landscape of what it sounds like when a baby cries, how to read your baby's cues, how to do all those things. That's all perspectival. And then there's what, how that transforms you over time that interaction between you and that baby and and that activity, that's the participatory. And and it strikes me that, um, that like in many things within movement, we've been stuck in this model where if we get the propositional right and we propose it to people, then we're going to get those other levels. And what, what's happening at the, you know, what's often happening with that kind of stuck, you know, what might be called reinvestment in motor learning theory is essentially we're trying to get procedural perspectival knowing to derive from propositional knowing. We're trying to control it in the wrong place. Is that, um, what do you get out of that? I mean, I think there's, there's definitely some things that pop out to me because one of the ideas right now that's sort of um, being evolved within ecological dynamics and its framework um, is that of where cognitions do live and breathe within that perception action coupling or essentially within, within that functional behavioral unit known as a movement solution to the respective problem. So how a human movement system is self-organizing a movement solution to meet the needs and, and what happens there um, dynamically from a cognitive perspective, obviously still fairly widely uh, unknown in context, right? Because it's it's hard to measure, it's hard to investigate, it's hard to study. But I think that's really the line of thought that we have to get to because when we think about it, we're not really asking, um, you know, as Davids and Arugio said, it, they said something along the lines of ask not what's in your head, but ask what your head is inside of, yeah. you know? So it's not so much what thoughts and ideas are going on, but 
why it's going on that way because of our interaction and our knowledge of what's happening out there. And, and that's really what, what he was referring to as well, to a certain degree, with some of those latter portions of organizing that skill. It isn't the declarative side necessarily on how to perform or execute this skill. It's in the interaction itself. We may need some declarative knowledge of how to execute at times, obviously. But then there's other times where it is only oriented around that declarative way of being able to say explicitly, this is how something is controlled, or this is how this step-by-step process will unfold. I think the place where ecological dynamics is misinformed or misrepresented at times throughout history and why many people who adopt a generalized motor program or schema way of looking at things where it is more top-down processes is People will accuse ecological dynamics or those within it from discrediting or not prioritizing cognitions. And it's not that at all. We still believe that intentions obviously act as an umbrella for perceptions and actions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we get with that whole knowledge about versus knowledge of and knowledge in type of dynamic there, dichotomy there, that if you have a knowledge within or knowledge of something because you've experienced it, you've explored it, you've accepted affordances there, you've interacted with affordances there, you sort of have searched your movement system for those processes, you know how you may have to focus or what you should be motivated to do or what your thought processes are, maybe where you hold that movement solution in your head as you approach it. There's going to be certain things that you don't want to be going through those processes step-by-step in your mind uh, as you approach it because they are too quickly occurring. You know, so if you're, that's where some of the ideas of like stimulus recognition um, and some of the other ideas in regards to like stimulus response, uh, maybe where some of the more generalized motor program or schema ideas kind of live. So if this, then that type of rule. But of course, we know that problems are too variable for that. So I think we just have to figure out where to hold that within our mind. And I, you know, as far as when I say hold it in our mind, what thoughts and ideas or aims to act in a respective way when we're presented with some information, some problem or some affordance within it, you know, and those of, you know, who might be out there who aren't familiar with the ecological dynamics terms, you hear me use this word affordance frequently. And that just means an invitation or an opportunity to act. It's this frame dependent, uh, individual dependent, you know, that cup affords holding. It also affords drinkability. You know, so same thing with my mug. But, um, you know, this in the tanning room here, it could afford drinkability. But if I really have the cognitive process around it, that's not my intention to do with this. Yeah, yeah. Spray that tanning bed behind me, you know? So, like, it's all in this interaction, again, with what your head is inside of. Right now, my head is inside this environment that just so happens to be a tanning room, which sounds really weird to the listeners out there, but we we had to sort of adapt and, and troubleshoot here as far as our lighting was concerned. But in any event, you can sort of see where I'm going with that. There are certain cognitive thought processes and intentions that we are all going through at all times. And those intentions and cognitions will have certain degrees of freedom that we want to be able to behave and serve that degree of freedom uh, bandwidth as well, where sometimes 
I do want to be in my own thoughts and ideas as I'm approaching. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm in my car and have to try to figure out where I need to go. Like those intentions are certainly there and they are guiding my perceptions. Maybe I'm looking for a street sign. I'm also acting at that same time and driving the car in a certain way. But that activity, that problem that I'm attempting to solve there dictates or allows me to do that. If all of a sudden that tiger walked in here from the example before, I probably don't want to be thinking, hey, what kind of animal is that? Does that animal present danger? Like, hell no, I know that animal presents danger because I can see that, I can feel that, I can understand that, and I have a knowledge of that enough to then act accordingly. Yeah, so if I can spit that back to you a little bit and contextualize it, I think you yeah, no doubt. To understand. So um, I, th I think first there's, we have to recognize that there's like, there's motivational frames, right? Like once the tiger occurs in your environment, um, if your motivational frame doesn't jump to survive the tiger very quickly, um, then you're losing those, right? So once you have a motivational framework, then that organ helps organize your intentions. You set your intentions effectively, and then wow. that reveals the salience landscape, reveals the landscapes of what is afforded to you relative to that intention and that motivational framework. Um, and then you, you know, and then that, that depends on your action capabilities and all of these things. So I think that the problem that we're laying out here is essentially that if you try to hold too many propositional controls in your, in your, in your mind, then, um, then essentially it slows you down and it prevents you from attuning effectively to the information in your environment. So when I was, um, you know, it, I've always kind of prided myself on my intellect and I thought of myself as not an especially physically talented athlete. So when I was were, early in my parkour days, there was always a couple of guys who were a little bit better than me. And my, my belief was that if I could think my, if I could think faster and think smarter about how to do these things, then I'd be able to catch up to them. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I think I, I really, I think it was really bad. It was very poor set of ideas for me to be walking around with in my head. Um, so I was, I was often kind of getting stuck in this paralysis by analysis, trying to hold too many um, pieces of information in my head, too many intentions in my head. I needed an intention about what my hands are doing, what my arms are doing, what my glutes were doing, what my uh, transverse abdominus was doing, right? <laughs> my externally rotating my, femoral joint, right? Um, and, and, and then, then, you know, then you just mess up, you get hurt. And over time, I've learned to, to tune a lot of that off, right? To turn a lot of it off. But it's not not thinking, right? Yes. It's, it's learning to, to set up your intentions and your um, attentional focus such that it allows you to match your action capabilities to the affordances of the environment. Yeah, and I think really what you're describing there, if you're familiar with any of the ideas of Claire Michaels and David Jacobs um, in regards to direct learning, okay. they basically said that if we if we adopt this idea that direct perception is a thing, that these affordances are out 
there for us to perceive and interact with and accept and, and you know, that are inviting us, but we can accept them, we can reject them. Um, it's frame dependent, it's individual dependent, um, it's time dependent, all those things. Then what's happening with the movement skill and how it evolves over time is essentially a three processes, three intertwined processes, just like perception, cognition, and action would be. We would have an education of attention, so start to understand perceptual attunement and becoming sensitive to the most specifying informational variable that is existing within that problem. We have the next um, intertwined piece or portion of that is an education of intention, which is what you're describing now, or skilled intentionality, the ability to sort of tune into and become resonant with or to allow this certain information to become resonant with. So if there's my respective aim to act in a given way because I've experienced this and I've been exposed to it enough, all of a sudden I have an increased skilled intentionality on how I should aim to act when I'm presented with that respective problem. That's kind of what you're describing. Then thirdly, we find a way, um, again, still interconnected, still intertwined there, we have this calibration where the perceptual motor system gets calibrated to based on our action capabilities, whether those are acute or whether those are more longitudinal. depending on, you know, they can be time scale dependent there, but our system then becomes calibrated to that information through attention and intention. And obviously their skill at every one of those respective levels too. So when you were speaking there, it started making me think about some of those ideas of direct learning um, that they started to highlight as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to give a context for that, to what's occurs to me is like, um, if I'm, so one of the things I noticed early on in my parkour training was that very often errors happened because of um, shifts of attention that were not in correct rhythm or that were just completely out of the blue, right? So if you're running through a course and there's something hard that's two steps down the line or three steps down the line and your attention shifts to it before you take care of the thing in front of you, um, then you're more likely to get hurt. So having a, fl- a smooth flow of attention is, is important. Um, uh, or sometimes just random thoughts would come into my head. <laughs> you know, and that's dangerous in and of itself as well. You're like running through a course and you're like, God, man, that fight with my wife. And then, bam. <laughs> um, and so I've, I've, you know, I've come to believe that mindfulness practices, uh, you know, attention training as a, as a meditation practice is actually very important. Um, just from a from a skill control perspective for an athlete, um, and then intention. Um, what what pops in my mind there is like, yeah. <laughs> um, so so there's uh, you know one of the one of the teachers that's out there in kind of the space that I'm in. Uh, they prescribe a very very. Uh, very complex model for doing a standing broad jump or a standing precision jump. So they they will try to to tell you you know how high your arms are supposed to go as you set the jump, you know how far behind you they're supposed to go, how low your hips are supposed to go, right? What the arm recovery looks like in the air, what the leg recovery looks like in the air. So now what's what's being lost in trying to attend to all of these things is the intention to jump as far as possible. 
which should be driving it first and foremost, or at least high enough on that um, on that priority scale. Exactly. So I've had athletes come to me, and I one of the things that we do is uh, we're influenced by Sparta Performance Science, um, and you know, so we are really interested in these kind of three three aspects of force production: how quickly can you produce force, how stable can you make the force production, and how much time of force production can you produce. And if we if we understand this about the athlete, we know where their tendencies lie. We can design their their training so that we highlight whatever the weaknesses are, and that makes them more robust and less fragile over time. So I, I have every athlete that I work with send me a video of their broad jump and their standing vertical jump so I can get an idea of what their general force production qualities are. Um, so I had one of my athletes do this for me, and I could tell that he had this whole set of cues that were essentially interfering with his intention on that broad jump. So I said, I want you to forget everything you've been taught about broad jumping and jump as far as you can. Just jump as far as you can. Show me what your jump looks like when you, all you're thinking about is jumping as far as you can. And uh, his jump went from 2.4 meters on his first trial to 2.7 meters on his second trial. So, um, so having those intentions correct uh, is incredibly important. So you need to attend to, you know, is, is there a thing you need to land on? You need to attend to what's the right thing in the sequence. Then you need to have the right intention that it organizes that. And then so there's education of attention, education of intention, attention, intention. And then the last one was and then the last one would be calibration or calibration. Yeah. So then basically capability to like, let's say they, you do put that jumper and you put a Creek uh, with one bank on one side and one bank on the other, the calibration for them to be able to understand, do, is that an affordance I should accept? Is yep. that an affordance that, that I can interact with based on my action capabilities? Yeah. And so we, you know, so one thing that's interesting is you watch parkour athletes, you know, they'll, they'll do jumps to the side of the jump that they're doing, or they'll bounce off. And essentially what this is, is, is as a calibration, it's learning mm -hmm. to control that level of force. And, and then also it's a way of educating this, the, the, the attentional system to recognize the correct affordances. Um, we, you know, this, this is one of the things that I, I love about natural movement and particularly natural movement within nature, as opposed to thinking about how a human being moves naturally, but trying to educate them in a, in an artificial environment. Nature provides an immense amount of variation, yep. which allows us to then um, essentially begin to notice how, what is the information that's consistent across multiple variations? This is, you know, Bernstein's repetition without repetition. And, and it's funny that you said that because you actually saw me probably getting ready to say something there. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm going to say yeah. that that's essentially what, what my man Bernie was thinking of when he talked about solving the problem again and again. You know, when we think about solving the problem again and again, we're not trying to repeat something in the solution necessarily. We're trying to repeat the problem solving process and that problem solving process then should take place across different situations and across different conditions. Right. And that's sort of what you're referring to that nature uh, inherently affords you. Yeah. So one way I've like uh, re re described what, uh, what Bernstein was describing is, you know, Bruce, uh, Bruce Lee famously said, fear not the man who's practiced a thousand different punches fear the man who's practiced one punch a thousand times. And what I would say is fear the man who's practiced that one punch in a thousand different variations or situations.
It's really funny that you say that because I don't think we were a Twitter acquaintances long enough for me, uh, for you to have seen my argument for exactly what you just said, uh, that I was arguing for that on my perspective because someone posed it, oh, probably back in the beginning of the summer, maybe late spring. And I almost said that verbatim to what you did because I kind of go back to that idea that that maybe the more famous quote that resonates for me from Bruce Lee, where he said the highest technique is they have no technique. My technique is the result of your technique. My movement is the result of your movement. So basically what he's insinuating, obviously, is that it depends on the environment and the problem within it, i.e. the opponent, and how my movement must be organized around that. Yeah, so uh, like a way of restating that would be that the highest technique is to be fully attuned to the environmental affordances. And to, yeah, and to be adaptable then with one's movement to it. Yeah, and I love that. I love that. I think we just coined something else that can certainly go out there. <laughs> and extending Bruce Lee and, and combining him with some Nikolai. There we go. Bruce Lee, that's some, that's some good stuff right there. Um, so uh, so one, one thing that, that, that it keeps popping into my mind in the course of this conversation is um, attuning people to intrinsic information and the role of, of, you know, a facilitator in that process, right? So you've talked about having NFL athletes come in and they've been given so many cues and so much information about skill execution that is actually interfering with with them attuning to what is actually the most important information the same way that happened with the athlete that i was talking about is you know he he'd been over cued and he's ignoring you know he doesn't have attention left for the the most specifying information so how do you look at um the role of extrinsic information as a teacher versus intrinsic information that comes for the student and and how do you kind of calibrate that in your work with the nfl athletes that you work yeah, that's a that's a really great question. When it is a case or situation like that, which it is more often than not, what I actually try to get them to do is first and foremost, direct their attention more distally, extrinsically within the environment and what's naturally going to be there. So we're trying to implicitly drive the human movement system to focus its attention and its intentions oriented around something outside of oneself, first and foremost, because they are so accustomed to sort of being in their own thoughts. You know, they're in their own feelings, if you will, as the young people would say today, you know, like when they are in their own feelings, it can constrain the movement system a lot. So I try to get them to figure out where maybe to look in the world outside of them or where to direct their perception in the world outside of them first and foremost, not necessarily telling them what to see or what to think when they do, just getting them to focus their attention there often, I find often drives the human movement system to more efficacious or more functional self-organization. I'm not saying that we shouldn't at times like that intrinsic information within the system, the kinesthetic sense and awareness, maybe some of the proprioceptive uh, information that's happening within the body that that can't be important. But they're so focused oftentimes when they first get to me or I'm likely guessing to us, they're so focused in on that that they're constraining the system or oriented around that information which the most important information that's existent in is all these layers and levels of the system and inter information and, and interactions, right? Mm -hmm. So 
there's extrinsic information that could come from an augmented source, such as that of the coach of like what you mentioned, but there's also information everywhere around us. There's an abundance of information for us to interact with and we can't possibly attend to it all. As I think I said earlier, so oftentimes the most proximal information, that which what exists within me sometimes has a little bit of, um, it doesn't really give me everything I need to couple my movement around because it doesn't actually tell me a lot about what's happening in the world. It really only tells me what's happening intrinsically. So we have to look at the system itself, but then the system that that system is a part of, which is the world outside of it and the problem that exists out there. So if we use that, that parkour example in regards to the, the jumper jumping over the creek, if that individual is just trying to get proprioceptive or touch information from the ground, it's going to give us a certain amount of information in regards to how we may have to interact with that problem, right? We can, it's a little distal, but it's not completely distal um, to the fact that we can feel if I'm on stable footing or on stable ground, for example, I'm getting haptic and touch information there. Um, I also will know how to calibrate the system on how quickly my counter movement may have to perform. And that could all be happening very subconsciously, of course, right? But also, if I have them focus distally, that's going to tell me a lot in regards to how I must execute that movement solution, much more than that haptic and touch information or much more than that proprioceptive information. For example, where that attention should flow visually or that perception should should flow visually will give me specifying information in regards to if the movement problem is a solvable one. Does that movement problem have a lock that I have a key for? Maybe it's a, you know, a a creek that is 13 feet in its, in its distance. I know that there's no way I can broad jump that. So I have to look for different affordances for action. Like there's no need for me to to even think about the surface or think about how quickly I can execute a counter movement if it's 13 feet away. Yeah. Yeah. So see where I'm going with that. Oftentimes we have to start outside of the system, work our way back in and then allow that system to become attuned to really what's specifying within that problem. Yeah. So there's a bunch of stuff that comes up with that for me. So the first thing is I think we're using intrinsic and extrinsic slightly differently. So extrinsic to me is information that's given to the, to the person from outside. Yeah. And I would think of that as being augmented. Yeah. Yeah. Augmented. So intrinsic by like the, the looking across the creek at the landing and, and judging how far it is, that's an intrinsic source of information. If I tell the athlete they can do the jump because I, the coach, believe that they can do the jump, that would be extrinsic in the way that I was using it. I gotcha. So um, now what? Now, aside from that, I totally agreed with what, what you were talking about, or I think it's a very interesting to think about where where in in the relationship of the body to the space is the appropriate place for the attention. And this is something that's come up a lot. Like I, I run into a lot of people who have like somatics backgrounds or internal martial arts backgrounds. And they, they will talk a lot about developing internal sensitivity to the quality of the foot on the ground, or the quality of, of, you know, the muscles and the spirals and the muscles and all these things. And I think, you know, if I'm jumping between two tree branches, 20 feet off the ground. And that's, what's on my mind. I'm going to die. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're going to have a frozen movement system pretty quickly. If the chaos or complexity gets too high. Yeah. So we, we, now there is a role for that. Like a tuning into that has a, has a place where it's in, 
where it, where it becomes interesting. Um, or, you know, there's certain types of, of drills or things that we can play with that, that we're having a very internal focus um, on that haptic information or that deep proprioceptive information. Um, but a lot of times it, it is that, that, that distal. And uh, so, you know, look at the jump, look where you're going to land. Think about the landing, right? Not about how your glutes feel. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the danger, you know, obviously with contemporary or modern fitness or even traditional fitness or exercise or training modalities mm -hmm. is we often direct the attention to intrins too intrinsically, too proximally, yeah. you know, to where what someone somatically is feeling. You know, we look at these sensory systems as being these subsystems, but really the more highly skilled performers have the ability to subconsciously put those sensory subsystems interacting into one perceptual system, right? A perceptual system that gears itself towards, again, what's most specifying at that moment in time. You know, if you are 20 feet above in the air and you're trying to determine how to land on that respective branch, the specifying information is not in in you know, within you, it's outside of you. Yeah. When, when Christian McCaffrey is preparing to like hurdle a defender who's trying to tackle him, he's not he's asking not about questions. triple extension. No, <laughs> I'm not thinking about like, what's the balance of forces on my calcaneus, the outside of my foot and my big toe. Like if he, if yeah. he's going to think that he's going to get it's clear the obstacle and can yeah. I clear the obstacle? Mm -hmm. And if so, how so? And I think that's really when, when we bring it full circle to the ecological dynamics perspective, you know, when you think about the ecological psychology side, it basically tells us why we're going to do something. There's this information out there within the problem that's guiding our movement behaviors, that's, that's regulating, helping us regulate our movement behaviors. And that the dynamical system side is how we're going to execute that. How do we organize those component parts to interact with that information most efficaciously or that problem? to where we have a functional fit between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think of, of ecological dynamics as fundamentally being about shifting the question from what's inside, what, what, how we perceive to what there is to perceive. Mm -hmm. and, I like that, yeah. yeah. Which is basically what's in the head versus what the head's inside of. Same, same, same idea. Yeah, same, same yeah. context. Yeah, and then, Brevaki has really helped me with understanding dynamic, dynamical systems with the idea is that you have these essentially opponent processing processes that, that allow nonlinear um, uh, responses. So you have a, you, you are an ecology. You're not a, you're not a machine. You're not an, a set. So you have a parasympathetic system and a sympathetic system. You have tonic muscles and phasic muscles. You have, you know, um, you, you have all these, these things that essentially exist in, in a in a kind of feedback loops mm -hmm. right that well if you think about it we are uh, under that model or under that that realm of thinking we are a system of systems and all those systems yeah. yes they have independent degrees of freedom but they will interact integratively and they constrain each other as well yes yes Right. Yeah, one hundred percent. And then there lies that that scope of analysis in the how they relate to one another. Mm -hmm. That's so important to us. Yeah. So I, I I asked you for ninety minutes of your time. So I'm realizing that we're we're moving towards the end of that. I feel like we could go on for quite a bit on on all these topics. Um, is there is there any kind of fundamental like the 
I guess one of the, the big interests for me in, in, in bringing you in is just elucidating these ideas, right? Having another person, another perspective on it. But also I'm interested in, um, it, it, it seems to me there's kind of like a, there's a, there's a movement world within the like elite sport world or people are talking about motor skill acquisition, they're talking about this. But when they think about movement, they're really thinking about it specifically in the context of how do I help athletes with specific uh, specific demands in their sport solve movement problems? Like that's one conversation about movement. And then there's a conversation about movement that's happening in what you might call movement culture and natural movement and parkour. And that's like more around this idea of how do we become better at movement in a global, general way? And so what is the insight that we can gain from studying what's happening at the specialist level that applies to this problem of if someone wants to be just better at movement in general, yeah. how do they go about doing that? And then on the flip side, what do you see the generalists having to offer the specialist world? Well, you know, I, and I think that's such a great question. I think it does go both ways there. Um, you know, the exchange of information or the way that we could lock arms together because there are gaps that we can fill on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. What I mentioned earlier, I'll start with your latter question first and mm -hmm. answer to it. And I think the thing that specialists can learn from generalists is the idea that um, specifically, again, degeneracy or movement abundance for those of you know who are unfamiliar with the term idea of degeneracy. Degeneracy is not meant to be yeah, a sounds bad in the ecological dynamics or motor behavior uh, field or, or side, yeah. right? It's it's meant to be about we have abundance within movement strategies or solutions, yeah. and I think that's what generalists can teach specialists first and foremost that that the ability to solve movement problems starts then and there of having more strategies or more solutions. Because if that's the case, we can adapt to more situations and conditions, right? Yeah. So to start with your, your second or latter question there first, it's a really simple answer. Mm -hmm. But the, the first one or the former question that you had there of, of what everyone really, how we can lock arms is, I think it comes back to sort of the theme of our conversation over this 90 minutes, my friend. It's it's really about creating movement problem solvers, presenting, yes. no matter if it's general or specific, or if it's sport or in real life, functional fitness, right? Whatever movement spectrum, we're all movers, right? And we all have problems to solve within our own respective contextual environment. And the more that we figure that piece and part out, the more we can then couple our movement systems to evolve in a skillful way to more functionally solve problems there where we live and breathe. And so whether it's in nature or whether it's a, you know, a mom picking up her kid and having to deal with that day in and day out, or whether it's an NFL player trying to hit a hole and score a touchdown, like we all are solving our respective movement problems. And in order to get better at solving movement problems, we have to couple our perceptions, our intentions, and our actions all oriented around being able to figure out how to solve those problems more functionally. So we have to have um, a practice, if you will, within our craft that does respect the problem. And it does prioritize the power of that information that's going to exist there for our movement system to adapt and attune to. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Very aligned with what we're, you know, that's perfect. Um, you know, the way that I see it, I guess, is, uh, I think that natural movement, movement culture, these are essentially like a reframing of GPP, 
right? It's recognizing that there's a much broader set of things that we need to be developed at that. And that, you know, from my perspective, the natural movement perspective is about understanding the human being within the context of their evolutionary history. What is a human being evolved for? Once we understand that and we put them in context and we develop these things, then we're going to produce that more generally capable movement problem solver. Well, and I think that's why we both are tied in in our respective crafts uh, so intimately or so closely there, because yeah. we are speaking from it uh, from the same lens or yeah. to it from the same lens. You know, we're investigating it under that problem solving paradigm. We're trying to understand it from that problem solving paradigm. And then we're trying to acquire or adapt that skill under that problem solving paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I think that that then we can see the practice as 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 actually informing us not only in sport um, or in physical practice, but in becoming more erudite problem solvers in life, right? Yeah. And that's the ultimate game. And that's where, that's where the orientation of sport was originally built for, right? Was that, that transfer to the human being that you become. I love it. I love it. So um, if folks are interested in in following your work, they're interested in coming to work with you, they're interested in understanding more about what, uh, what you do, um, tell us all about Sean Mishka. <laughs> uh, obviously, uh, they can find me, as you mentioned earlier, as the Movement Miyagi. Uh, so if you are on Twitter, I uh, welcome your interactions there. It's at Movement Miyagi, just as it sounds. And there's a whole story in and of itself uh, oriented around how that came to be. Uh, but I always welcome interacting with people on, on there. Um, I also do have a movement skill education company, uh, which is entitled Emergence, uh, but it's at Emergence. Emergent Movement, and movement is MVMT.com, so EmergentMovement.com, but the movement is abbreviated to MVMT, and that can be found, um, obviously, online. Uh, I welcome interactions there as well, and we do a number of different things uh, from a movement skill education standpoint. Uh, we put out educational courses. Uh, we have interactions and meetups such as this, but with a bunch of people who are passionate and energetic about movement, so there's a lot of different kind of ways to get involved with that. And then I do host an annual sport movement skill conference this year. It's taking place in Phoenix, Arizona on May 16th and 17th, or I should say this year as in 2020, uh, the third annual sport movement skill conference. It'll take place at Altus, uh, which is an elite track and field uh, environment uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, we're pretty stoked for that. Just simply trying to help people lock arms from the experimental side. So uh, you know, people who are scientists, researchers, uh, philosophers, theoreticians, as well as then those on the artistic side, the practical side, the experiential side. We're trying to bring people together so we can have equal collective sharing around many of the ideas that you and I just talked about as well. So a bunch of different initiatives there, hopefully all with a purpose and all with the vision of trying to understand movement behavior more deeply. Beautiful. Really, thank you for taking the time today. I thought it was super informative. I'm really excited about the conversation we've started. Hopefully we'll have lots more opportunities to, uh, to dig into these ideas together. No, the pleasure is all mine, my friend. I can't thank you enough. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review 
It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.